Welcome to the sermon podcast of Old Bridge Baptist Church. Our mission at OBBC is to make disciples of Christ who connect with God, others, ministry, and the lost. We pray that the following sermon will encourage you in your walk with Christ today. Visit us on the web anytime at obb.church. Father God, Lord, I just pause now before I would seek to preach your word to your church, Lord, we're scattered this morning all across the area, uh, but Lord, we're united in faith, we're united in, in love, and Lord, we, we thank you for, uh, Lord, just the spirit that unites us, thank you for your word, how it instructs us, Lord, and Father, as we spend some time before it this morning, Lord, we just humble ourselves, God, and we ask that you would speak to us. Lord, speak clearly, uh, Lord, from your word. Lord, we, we long to hear not from man today, but Lord, from you. And God, we, we pray that you would do your work in us. Lord, these, these times of trial or are often the times where, uh, Lord, you work the most mightily in our lives, and God, we don't want to miss it. Father, I pray that you would uh, guard and protect your flock here at Oldbridge Baptist. God, protect them from uh, the illness, Lord. Protect them from the evil one. And Lord, keep us, Lord, focused upon you during this time, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, my mom sent me this quote last night as I was finishing up my sermon. Uh, it was a quote from a blogger by the name of Jeannie Allen. And I'm actually kind of using the quote a little bit out of context here, but it really illustrates uh, what, I, what I want us to focus on this morning from the book of James. Uh, this blogger asked the question, how many of God's best stories start? I didn't plan for this part of my life. I don't, I don't know about you, but I have found myself reeling these past couple of weeks uh, just with these, this circumstance as, I, as I'm trying to come to grips with uh, this new reality that we're living in. This pandemic was not according to my plan, and, and I'm guessing it wasn't according to your plan either. But apparently, it, it was a part of God's plan for us right now. And so how are you doing with coming to grips with this fact? The Lord's earthly brother, James, starts out his New Testament letter with these words. In James chapter 1, verse 2, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. You know, we're in the midst of trials of various kinds right now, aren't we? James says, count it all joy for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or endurance. God is up to something. He's testing and growing our faith into something steadfast and complete. And I have found three helpful reminders this morning about who God is from the book of James that 
really my hope and, and prayer is that it will be helpful to, to you as you come to grips with this new reality we find ourselves living in. We're going to zero in here on actually the end of the letter, beginning in chapter 4, verse 13. First, God is sovereign and we are not. Look at verse 13 here, where James reasons with us as we make plans. As we make plans as if we know what the future holds, as if uh, we are the ones who are in control. James reasons with us here. He says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. You know, times of safety and, and prosperity really lulls us into a false sense of, of control. We become puffed up thinking that, you know, we are the ones that direct our days. And we neglect the fact that we don't even know what the next breath is going to hold, let alone the next day. James reminds us of this fact here, and, and he continues here. He, he goes even further. Not only do we not know what the future holds, but he goes on to say in verse 14, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So not only do we not know the future, but our life is short. Sometimes it's tragically short. And from the perspective of eternity, our, our life is just like a, a watery vapor that is there for a moment. And then it gones. Even the fullest of, of lives here in this life is just like a vapor in, in comparison to eternity. James says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. You know, as Christians, we often say that God is in control. But it really takes times of trial to test that belief, doesn't it? Who could have foreseen the circumstances that we now see ourselves in? I don't know about you, but I can't remember a time in my own life when everything that I was planning for this year has just been completely uprooted and, and, and is up in the air. I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. I can't remember a, another time in my life where everything that I thought I was going to be doing is just uh, completely thrown out the window. It's been humbling. I think it's been humbling. It's, it's drawn me to this passage here in James to be reminded of the fact that all, of, all along I should have been saying, if God wills, if it's, God, if it's God's will, I will do this, that, or the other thing. But, but now here in this, these alarming times, in, in the midst of a trial, I, I, I think that God is calling us to accept his sovereign will by faith. This isn't what we planned, but it's what he planned. And, and, and we really can give thanks to God that, that he is the one that's in control and not us. Thank God that he cares enough about us, about our world, to step into our overly busy schedules and interrupt us and, and, and make us sit still for a moment and think about our days. That we are, are, are not 
in control, but that he is. Have, have you been too busy with work or with play to stop and consider God? I think it's almost as if God is telling us, telling the whole world right now, be still and know that I am God. I think this is a great mercy from God if you'll receive it. Isaiah chapter 46, the Lord says about himself, he says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. God is sovereign and we are not. We need to remember that in these days. Secondly, God is just and he will set things straight one day. As we turn from chapter 4 and, and head into chapter 5 here of the book of James in the first six verses here, James begins to condemn those who are rich because they are wickedly oppressing the poor and marginalized believers to whom James is writing. And James says, here in verse 1, he says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. I don't think these rich, oppressive landowners were Christians who were behaving badly uh, because James never refers to them as brothers like he normally does throughout the book. In fact, this was a warning to these rich oppressors that perhaps they would never even read or ever even know about. This was a letter written to the believers. And, and I think the primary reason that James shares these words of warning to the rich here is to shape the worldview of the brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering under opposition and oppression. They're suffering. And, and James is trying to shape their worldview to, to help them to understand. He's assuring them that this injustice is not going unnoticed by God and that he will make things right someday. You know, even though these, these rich oppressors, they, they currently seemed so blessed and so secure from all harm and the believers seemed so downtrodden and, and life was so out of control and things were so difficult, James assures them that there is in fact a coming day of reversal where the Lord will make everything right. What is it that these rich oppressors had done? Well, James tells us here in the next couple verses that they were hoarding their wealth and storing it away for themselves. Even though all, all that that wealth would do is sit there and, and rot and corrode. They had plenty. They had more than enough. And yet, James says they were, they, they were not even paying uh, either sufficiently or at all their workers who were working out in the field, harvesting their crops. James says here in verse 4, Behold, the wages are crying out against you, and their cries have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. 
The Lord of hosts. That's an interesting way to describe God. This word here, hosts, is the word Sabaoth. Not Sabbath, but Sabaoth. Uh, James, what he did here is he just took the Hebrew word and he transliterated it over into Greek. And this is actually a very Hebrew expression to call God the Lord of hosts, Lord Sabaoth. And what that word means is armies. He is the Lord of armies. He is the Lord of hosts. He is the, the, the Lord of countless angel armies. And this Lord, he hears and he will act decisively one day. James en- envisions these rich oppressors like cattle who are fattening themselves for the day of slaughter. He says, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. This is verse, verse 5. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist. Though these rich oppressors' actions were not directly violent uh, against these people, they, still their greed was, was murdering the people that they should have been caring for, but yet through their injustice, they, they were mistreating them. What power do the oppressed have to resist the powerful in such a situation? They have none. But God hears and sees what they do. These wealthy landowners were withholding pay from their workers and instead they were living selfishly and lavishly for their own gain. They were living as if there was no one who could call them into account. They were living as if they were above accountability. Does that describe you today? Have you been living your life as if, you were com- as if it was completely your own? Have you been living your life as if there was no God to see you or to hear you or to reckon with you someday? James would want you to take warning. Jesus is coming again and this time he's not coming with his glory veiled in, in humility to serve. He, when he returns this next time, the Bible warns us so clearly that it's going to be a time of, of judgment. And only those who have sought refuge in him now will find that they are safe on that day. Sometimes I think we read a passage like this in the New Testament where it's talking about these rich oppressors who are, who are being greedy and living selfishly and, and, and we think that that doesn't really apply to us in any way. We think that, that maybe this is talking about the billionaires out there or the millionaires or people that, that uh, you know, own businesses or, or, or whatever. It's those people over there. It doesn't apply to me. But I think this principle here that these folks were living in such a way that they thought that they were above accountability, it does describe you and me. You and I are sinners and, and, and we, like these rich oppressors, have lived as if there is no God to hold us accountable. And we all need the, the life-giving forgiveness of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ.
This reminds me of, of Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, where some people came to Jesus to ask him about some Galileans who, whose blood uh, uh, Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And this really upset them and it, it disturbed them. And, and apparently they thought that this fate, this terrible thing that had happened to these Galileans must have been because they have, had committed some terrible sin that they were more wicked than everybody else. But listen to how Jesus answers them in Luke chapter 13. He says, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Hebrews chapter 9 and, and verse 27 says this, it is appointed for a man to die once, And after that comes judgment. It's the warning of Scripture. But we have an opportunity today to repent of our sins and to seek refuge in Jesus. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us so clearly that today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 2 says, Behold, Now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. I think all trials should should remind us that that there is a, a, a coming day when God, who is just, is going to set everything straight. It's a warning to us. And I hope it's a warning that you will hear this morning so it's a warning, but it's also a hope for you if you will seek refuge in him. Thirdly and, and finally this morning, God is near, so be patient. So come from verses 7 through 11 of, of James chapter 5. So in this context of injustice that we've just been looking at in the first part of of the chapter here, James then turns his attention back to his suffering brothers and sisters in Christ and he he gives them this imperative to be patient. He says, be patient therefore brothers until the coming of the Lord. What does it mean to be patient? Well, it means to, to put up with suffering, doesn't it? To put up with it, to forbear with it, in hopes of things getting better, of a coming reward or a coming deliverance. Just hang on, wait, be patient. It means to endure through suffering with hope. Can you believe that's what James tells these folks who are, are suffering this kind of, of oppression? He tells them to be patient and to wait until the, the coming of the Lord. You know, on a, a practical level, when a parent tells a child no, no is supposed to mean no, right? And a, a persistent child may continue to ask, but most parents, you know, will stand their ground and say no, no means no. That's not what, what God is saying to his children who are suffering. He's not saying no, I'm not going to come and deliver you. But on the other hand, when we tell our children to be patient, 
what do we mean? We, we mean yes, but we mean wait for it, right? Be patient. It's coming, just not yet. So in, in the face of the suffering and the difficult circumstance that's described in verses 1 through 6, James isn't saying, look, God's not going to deliver you, so stop asking. No, he's saying, be patient. Endure the suffering with hope because God will certainly deliver in time. I heard John Stone Street this week. He said that uh, one of the greatest contributions we as a church can make right now is through our Christian hope. He said that we forget that many of those with a secular worldview are, are walking through this right now with a Darwinian evolutionary perspective. And, and that's a perspective that he says, quote, the world has survived thus far on razor-thin margins of error. Think about that. If, if that's true, if that's true that, that we're here by a happy accident uh, of chance over billions of years, then what's to prevent something like this pandemic from just bringing a meaningless end to us all? Right? And, and what was it all for? There's no hope in that worldview. But in contrast, we Christians have a, a shining hope in the midst of emergencies, in the midst of trials that we can let shine. So let's let it shine. Let our hope in God shine. We have been humbled by this just like everybody else. But we need not be shaken. God is in control and at the right time. We know, we are confident that he will deliver us from this trial and from all other trials. He's already done it through his son, Jesus Christ, by sending him into the world to overcome our greatest problem. He sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, to be buried in a grave and to rise again on the third day in victory over sin. He's already done it. Jesus has already, a, a, man, a son of man and son of God has already risen from the grave and ascended back up into heaven and is seated right now at the right hand of God the Father so that by faith in him we can actually have access to the, the King of kings and the Lord of lords and to the heavenly throne room and we can know that we are accepted by God. And he promises that one day soon he is coming again and he will deliver us. This is, this is not something that needs to fret us because we know that his coming is at hand. He is so near. James describes him as standing at the door even now. His return is imminent. He could return at any time any time that he chooses. And James says in, in verse 8, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. The coming of the Lord is a terror to those who do not believe, but to those of us who do believe, it is our long-awaited hope. And in the meantime, James says in verse 9, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. You know, when times get tough 
it's easy to groan and to grumble against one another and, and ultimately to grumble against the Lord for the days that he's ordained that you should walk through. But we shouldn't do it, brothers and sisters. We shouldn't do it. We shouldn't be like the children of Israel out in the wilderness who tested God ten times through their, their grumblings and their groanings. They, they complained about their leaders and they questioned the Lord's love and his provision in their life. It's such a temptation in, in the times of trouble to grumble, but we shouldn't do it. We should put it off and trust instead in the Lord who will surely deliver us. He is so near. He stands at the door. And James, he gives us two illustrations of patience in this text. Two illustrations of patience in suffering to, to really hold on to First one is, is that of a farmer, and then the second one is that of the prophets, specifically Job, verses 10 and 11. Let's talk about a farmer first. You know, a farmer is a, a great example of patience. Because a, a farmer plants the crops, he plants the seed in the ground, and, and he has to wait, doesn't he? He, he doesn't immediately re- reap a, a reward I think my generation probably would struggle with being farmers, right? Uh, we put the seed in the ground and we want the crop to spring up right away. But no, we have to wait for it. We, we need patience. The farmer plants the crop in the ground and in the meantime, there's lots of work and weather to endure. And, and so much is outside the control of the farmer, especially the weather, you know, in Israel, the, the crops really needed a good soaking in the, in the rainy seasons, in, in the early spring and in the late autumn. They depended upon it. The Jews were actually instructed by God in Deuteronomy chapter 11 and verse 14 to patiently trust in him to send those rains for their crops in, in their due season. And historically, one of Israel's greatest temptations was to turn to the gods of the nations around them, to turn to other means, to to try to seek the the rains to come to provide for their crops so that they could have what they need. That was one of their greatest temptations, was to not trust in the Lord for that. And so the Jewish Christians to whom James writes here would be very familiar with the kind of patience and faith that it would take to wait for God to send the rains. Both the early and the late rains. And James says waiting for God under suffering is kind of like that. It's kind of like a farmer waiting for God to send both the early and the late rains. We should be like farmers. Second example of the prophets in Job here in verses 10 and 11. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord, James says. He says, behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. Consider them blessed. What does it mean to be blessed? You know, that, that word can simply mean to, to be happy. But I really think James is getting at something deeper than just mere subjective emotional happiness. I think he's, when, 
the scriptures speak of being blessed by God, it, it means not just a happiness, but it's something deeper. It's getting at an objective reality of a relationship, a favorable, gracious relationship with God. You know, it, it's so easy to read accounts of other people persevering through trials and, and to think, wow, aren't they blessed? Look at how God blessed them. I want to be like the prophets of the Old Testament, right? I want to be like the heroes of the Old Testament and New Testament that, that walked through difficult times and they had, you know, great faith in the midst of trial. Yet when suffering hits us, it's a different matter, isn't it? <laughs> it's no longer theory. It's, it suddenly becomes a reality. We admire those who have come before us that have been steadfast through, tr through trial and we want to be like them. Yet when the suffering comes to us, we groan and we complain and we lose heart. James says, Remember how you read of the prophets who spoke for the Lord and consider them blessed by God even though they suffered greatly. Well, now maybe it's your turn. Maybe it's your turn to suffer. And James is reminding us here to keep the end in mind. God is doing something here in your life. And he really just drives this point home through the specific example of Job. He says, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. When you think of suffering, how can you not think of the prophet Job? Right? This man, he lost it all in a single day as a, as a test of faith. He lost his possessions, his livelihood, even his children. Yet Job didn't curse God and, and turn away from him. He, by God's grace, clung to his faith in the Lord. And, and as if that weren't enough, then Job lost his health, being covered in sores from the, the, the top of his head to the soles of his feet. He was completely covered in sores. And his wife comes in and, and sees him and says, Job, why are you still hanging on? Just curse God already and die. But Job holds on to his faith by, by God's grace. And so next his friends turn on him and they, they begin to suspect him of, of, of some deep, great hidden sin that's the root cause of all of this suffering in his life. And they question his, who he is as a, as a believer. And, and yet still Job believes in God. Now in the end, God himself shows up. If you, know, if you know the story of Job, if you don't know the story of Job, let me encourage you to read through that book. But if you do know the story, in the end, God himself shows up and, and Job is humbled significantly in his view of himself. But then after that, in the end, God restores Job and even doubles Job's fortunes. And you see, Job was patient through his sufferings and in time, God delivered him. And so we consider Job blessed. We look at Job, and, and even though he went through all that terrible suffering, we look at him and we consider him blessed as an example of faith. It's an incredible story of how God worked patience and endurance in the life of a man as he suffered 
just senseless loss and senseless shame. And we have to be careful when we study the book of Job that we don't give the praise and the glory to Job. The praise and the glory goes to God in, in any of our lives when, when we have faith. We also need to be careful not to take this story and, and to, to make it mean that somehow if we just cling to our faith, in the end, God's going to double our portfolio. Right? That's not what the book of Job is about. No, James says, hey, you've heard what happened to, to, to Job in his case, and you have seen what is the purpose of the Lord. You know, we often don't know why God allows suffering in our life, but it's one of the first questions that we often ask God. God, why is this happening to me? And Job is one of those stories in the Bible that gives us a peek behind the curtain of heaven. And we get to see what was going on in the, in, in the heavenly throne room that, that unleashed this suffering in the, in the life of Job, one of God's children. And, and what do we see when we get to see behind the curtain here? We see that God wasn't trying to destroy Job and strip him of his faith. He wasn't destroying Job in that way. No, the purpose of God, the end of God in Job's suffering, the purpose of God in the suffering that he allows in the life of a believer is to test and to purify our faith and so bring glory to God. We have heard of Job's suffering and we have seen the Lord's purpose in this and through it we know God's character from the story of Job. We know that God is actually compassionate and merciful and that's what we cling to as believers in God through whatever days that God has us to walk through in our life whether they're the days that we would have chosen for ourselves or not. God has ordained these days for us and we walk through them clinging to a confidence in the character of God that he is compassionate and he is merciful and if he has allowed this into my life then it is for good and so therefore I can count it all joy. We know as Psalm 103 says that the Lord is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, the psalmist says, nor will he keep his anger forever. So be patient and wait for the Lord. God is sovereign and we are not. So be humbled. God is just, and he will set things straight, so just hang on and also be warned. And lastly, know that God is near, and you, child of God, can trust in him as you wait patiently for him. Know who he is. He is compassionate and full of mercy. God is up to something in your life. And as you have opportunity now to slow down, God has interrupted your normal routine. As you have extra time in your, in your week this week, I want to encourage you to slow down and be still and know that he is the Lord. Spend some time with him and see what he might be saying to you 
through this time of trial. Let me pray for you now.